We have one more week after today. Uh, we will be looking at the resurrection accounts a week from today. And as has happened uh, sometimes in previous years, this semester works out to where um, we have our study and meditation on the crucifixion today, the day before Maundy Thursday and coming into this Good Friday. And then our thinking about the resurrection will happen just a few days after Easter Sunday. So the timing is nice, honestly, for me personally. It's been good to be able to just spend the hours I've been able to get um, in, in these passages. And, and again, I encourage you to do um, something like that. Um, spend some time in these scriptures. And I hope today will will serve that purpose. Let me pray and, and then we can start uh, studying together. <coughs> we do thank you, Father, for this opportunity um and thank you for these friends these brothers and sisters and I ask your blessing on them especially as we all move through these days of remembrance we pray that they would be uh deeply that and maybe in in ways and dimensions that we haven't even quite thought of or experienced before may our study this afternoon serve toward these ends uh, we do pray, as always, that your spirit would attend your word, uh, that you would work uh, through it, that it would accomplish your purposes. Open our eyes, we pray. Open our ears, our hearts, our minds, our spirit to your spirit. And I do pray that you would um, be gracious and reward these friends according to your grace. Um, and work past my failings and, and stumblings, I pray. Um, we thank you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to focus on the uh, the cross, on the crucifixion uh, today, but before I do that, I want to jump into a, a question that's a difficult one. Um, some of you may have spent time working on this. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it, but it's the question about the Passover as it appears in the synoptics and as it appears in John's gospel, you may be aware that you do get two different pictures in the gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us a picture of Jesus having a dinner with his disciples on what would be Thursday evening coming into the weekend. Um, and it is identified as the first day of leavened bread, of unleavened bread. And it's the day on which the Passover uh, animal is um, slaughtered, is sacrificed. And that happens in the afternoon. And then the instruction, according to Exodus 12 and other passages, is that after sunset that evening, um, that animal would be consumed um, as the as the evening meal. Uh, in John, however, you get the picture that the temple authorities were concerned about going into um, Herod's quarters on Friday morning, on what's known as Preparation Day, um, uh, on, on what's known as Preparation Day, meaning Preparation Day leading into the Sabbath. Um, Sikora, you, oh, there you go, thanks. Um, um, preparation day being Friday and the Sabbath beginning Friday evening and running through Saturday. 
Um, so what we've got is in Mark, to just go ahead and, and show you here, um, and you want a Bible in front of you today. I don't have a handout, but I think it's easier just to go from, from gospel to gospel. Look at Mark chapter 14, and it's a good example of what the gospels, the synoptics do. Um, Mark 14, verses 12 to 16, basically. Mark says that on the first day of unleavened bread, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, um, or the, the word lamb is not actually there, but when, when they were sacrificing the Passover, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sends them off. Um, they are to say in verse 14, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And in verse 16, um, they find it just as he's told them, and they prepare the Passover. And then in, on that evening, he comes together with the twelve, um, and they have this meal. Luke gives us a very similar picture in chapter 22. Luke 22, verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. Peter and John go, prepare prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Jesus says, he then gives them the instruction. Verse 11, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 13, they prepared the Passover. Um, verse 15, he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So it certainly looks like a Passover, the Passover meal. And we'll come back to that, but it certainly presents itself that way. Then you go over to John chapter 18. And this is the period of the trials. And so in verse 28, they've now brought him to um, uh, Pilate. From Caiaphas, we're told, to the Praetorium. That's Pilate's place of judgment. It was early, early Friday morning, this would be. And they, the temple authorities who are trying Jesus, do not want to enter the Praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So there you've got the picture of the Passover, it would seem, still to come that evening, that Friday afternoon in John's account, seems to be the time when the animals are to be prepared, killed and prepared. And then that evening, Friday evening, is when they would eat the Passover meal. So you get two different pictures here. One, Matthew, Mark, Luke, a Passover meal on Thursday evening. John suggests a Passover meal Friday evening. Um, John does, of course, have the have Jesus with the disciples on Thursday evening in John 13 at the beginning of that chapter uh, it reads now before the feast of the Passover knowing that Jesus had come his hour had come um, and, the, and then it goes on and then in, in, in verse 2 during supper Jesus then does this now as to what supper that is we don't know, but it's pretty clearly the same meal and same evening as 
what Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe as occurring on Thursday evening. And indeed, it's what it occurs on Thursday evening in John's gospel too. So that's that's the deal. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't have a neat solution for this one. But but it's not just one of those um, yeah, curious little contradictions that people raise. Uh, for instance, John also says that the crucifixion took place in in what he identifies as the sixth hour and that doesn't match up with the other gospels i'm i'm pretty content to think you know evidence indicates that there was more than one way to keep time in the roman empire there's a reference in plutarch for instance who would have been a contemporary of john writing at the end of the first century beginning of the second century their lives would have at least overlapped where where plutarch uses a time reference that matches up with John's. So I, you know, so is it different from Matthew, Mark and Luke? Yeah, but there, there was more than one way to reckon time. And so I'm not, it's not a big deal. We could talk about it if you want. Um, but this one, this one's substantive. This one's interesting. Partly because you get two different messages, if you will. Um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, what gets established is the connection between Passover and what we then come to know is the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Eucharist. Um, and, and you get that connection so that the bread and wine of that evening takes on this significant continuity with, with the Jewish Passover and with Jesus in the Passover. John presents this in a way that he emphasizes Jesus as the lamb of the Passover. Um, and that's in, that's in keeping with his entire gospel. Remember in chapter one, where we have much more of John the baptizer in John's gospel, when, um, when Jesus is introduced, John the baptizer introduces him as behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You get that twice, I think, in verse 29 and 35 or something like that. Um, so in chapter 1, Jesus appears in John's gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus appears very specifically in that role of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb, as John will understand it. Um it, it's uh, it's striking that you see if if you follow the Exodus 12 instructions, the lamb is killed in the afternoon and then consumed in, in the evening meal. So in John's Gospel, Jesus is killed at exactly the time uh, that that the lambs would have been been slaughtered. Um, now, what's going on? I, I'm not sure. There's there's various possibilities. Um, one is that just one of these was the Passover, and the other one was something else. Um, there there is the possibility, for instance, that the meal Jesus had with his disciples on Thursday evening was a a preparation meal for the Passover. Um, that because Passover leads you into a week of unleavened bread of a, of a sort of a stricter diet, that there is a, a meal the evening before the Passover meal that introduces the fasting. And then it starts 
you know, with the Passover meal and goes on from there. That's, that's one possibility. Um, the, the problem with that, it seems in the, in the biblical account of the gospels is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all identify Thursday as the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Um, so you got to mess around with first day. Um, if, if, if in fact it's a preparatory meal and the actual Passover would be the next night, you know, then Jesus is saying what? I, I am, I, I have really looked forward to celebrating this Passover with you, meaning the one that we're sort of looking forward to tonight. I, I don't know. It just, it just seems like Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples on that evening and their preparation for it would have included the sacrifice of, of the lamb and the preparation of that lamb for the, for the meal. Um, is it possible that the temple authorities were doing something else? Mm, that's not likely. Um, is it possible that the temple authorities didn't quite get to Passover on Thursday evening being distracted as they were? By everything that's going on with Jesus, and I don't know, and they and they and, and it's been delayed somehow. They're still it's still in front of them. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, possibly. Um, one of the things that we wish we knew more about was the way that Passover would have been celebrated in the era of the temple, um, this second temple era. Uh, which is the time of Jesus. Um, the, the evidence we have comes mostly later after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but this period, we, we wish we had more knowledge of just how the Passover would have been celebrated. Remember in Exodus, when it was instituted, it was a meal for the families of Israel who were captive in Egypt. There was no temple, of course. There was no tabernacle. They were in captivity. It was a private meal in homes. And, and maybe you combined with your next door neighbors if there were just a few in the household. Then you get to the temple period. And it's clear the picture that you've got here is that Passover is being celebrated in Jerusalem at the temple. What the impact of that was for how it was celebrated, we, we wish we knew more about. I mean, one possibility is that what Jesus is doing with his disciples is maintaining more of the, if you will, sort of pure tradition of Exodus and and the other Old Testament passages that refer to the Passover, and that it was much more of a family meal, if you will, he and his small band of followers, and that what was going on with the temple authorities was some more developed temple-based celebration of Passover that may have connected it more to act to the Sabbath. And so the meal would have been eaten on that evening that starts the Sabbath. Remember, the day in Jewish culture would have begun with sunset and run through uh, to the next sunset. Now, that's an interesting possibility. It's one that I've found kind of interesting, but I've got to admit, I'm also skeptical of that one. And the reason has to do with the fact that as time goes by and you get into the second century, uh, there is a significant controversy in the church about how to celebrate what becomes Easter. Um, and, and it, and it has to do with 
whether you keep the celebration of the Lord's Supper and then Easter following, whether you keep that on a particular day of the week, namely a Sabbath or a Sunday, or whether you keep it on a particular numbered day of the month. So the instructions for Passover was it was to be celebrated on the on the 14th of Nisan, the month of Nisan in the spring. Do you stay with the 14th of Nisan or do you say, no, we want we want to we want it to be on a Sabbath or we want it to be on a first day of the week to celebrate what then becomes the resurrection and Easter. The church divides over this. Um, sadly, it becomes more of a, a deal than I think it should have, in my personal humble opinion. Um, and, and there were others at the time who were saying the same thing. The Eastern Church were, were known as, if you will, the 14ers, meaning they wanted to hold on to that 14th of the month and the lunar calendar that went with it. Um, the Western Church was the one that moved more to the first day of the week and, um, and, and eventually, uh, it, it went that direction. Um, even after the church, churches East and West agreed that Sunday should be the day for Easter, the Eastern Church continued to connect the celebration much more closely with Passover than the Western Church did. Because the Eastern Church held so strictly to that 14 of Nisan, um, I, I'm inclined to think that if anything, the temple authorities under the, under, you know, at the time of Jesus would have been, would have been stricter about that. That, that that's where I just wish we knew more. Now, there are all these possibilities, um, and there are probably more that I'm not even uh, bothering to go into. Um, what I'm inclined to do on something like this is, is sort of just let it stand and, and let the, the two accounts make the emphases they want to make. But I'll tell you, I'm also inclined just even from a, um, a would be historian's perspective. I, I was once upon a time aiming to be a historian. I got trained to be a historian. I dabbled in the profession for a while. And then God said, no, we'll, we're going to do something different. But, but I will say, I, I think I, I, I dislike the fact that too often these biblical texts are treated as if, you know, they're just a question mark. And then you've got to go to what's called historical evidence. Well, these are part of the historical evidence. They, they tell us something about life in these periods. And, and so I'm inclined to think that there is some way in which those temple authorities were celebrating Passover on that Friday. It's possible that they were still wanting to just stay pure because Passover had happened the evening before. But, but you don't get that picture. You get the picture that that, that there was some kind of way in which Passover was being celebrated and it had everything to do with the temple and, and what was going on there. And that on Thursday night, Jesus and his group of followers celebrated Passover as well. That, that it, that it was happening in some way in both occasions. And while the synoptics pick up that first one and their emphasis is there, um, John picks up that evening and gives us Jesus's extended teaching 
and the theology of Jesus's teaching and then emphasizes Jesus's role as Passover sacrifice on Friday afternoon in connection with the celebration of Passover that he also knew was happening on that day. So I'm inclined to say, I, I think both things are happening in some form or another, and we do well to take both the synoptics point and Jesus's connection of the Lord's Supper with Passover and John's point that emphasizes the role of Jesus as the Passover lamb. What are your thoughts? Questions or does somebody have the solution that someone explained to you once upon a time and, and we, and we can all be enlightened. Well, one, one thing I did read from another commentary was the Thursday evening meal that when Jesus instituted the Lord's supper was not the Passover meal Mm -hmm. because as outlined in Exodus. And I think again, in Deuteronomy to, to, when the Jews partook of the Passover meal, they had to have sandals on their feet, their belts tightened, and staffs in their hand, and they had to eat it quickly. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they would have been lounging as they were. Uh, I think it was more of a celebration of the Passover meal on Thursday night. So that's my two cents, because I, I think an observant Jew would not have taken the Passover meal in the, in the casual manner that they, that was, they did Thursday night. I don't know. 2000 years ago, it's hard to know exactly what happened. There was no, there was no cell phone recording there or anything else. So not not that cell phone recordings can always be trusted. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Part of what does seem fairly clear in terms of actual evidence is that there was flexibility and definitely development as to how the meal was celebrated over the centuries, both before and after uh, Jesus. Um, So in the Exodus case, you've clearly got the parameters that you just suggested, Bill. Um, This is a meal eaten in haste, et cetera because it, it was the situation that it was. Then that becomes an annual memorial meal and at that point it starts to evolve so as you work through even the biblical texts in the old testament you'll see an evolution of how to how to observe the meal and then when you go on from there into the history and and into the rabbinical uh, teachings and and all you you'll see still more um development and then after the destruction of the temple a fair amount of flexibility as to how uh, the meal would be celebrated and it would be more of a contemplative meal. And so you move from that haste picture to a more lingering, memorializing, conversational um, meal in which you recall the history and, and you sort of linger over it and, and talk together. Um, but, but yeah, there's still, Bill, you're right that one of the very popular arguments is that the Thursday night meal then was either a preparatory meal for what would have been the Passover meal the next night, um, or, or in keeping with the fact that there was flexibility and development in this, that Jesus was making something of that flexibility and kind of improvising, um, a meal, uh, on, 
a day early because he knows what's coming. So, yeah. Um, I don't want to spend all of our time on this, but, but, but it, it is one of those things where number one, I'm glad to have some points where I'm not sure how the gospels relate and, and that's okay. And I want that to be clear. Um, but number two, I take them seriously, not just with regard to the theological understanding they're communicating, but with regard to the details of the events. I, I think there's some way in which these are both act- accurate depictions of what was going on in Jerusalem, um, both in the private ceremony of Jesus and his followers, um, in keeping more with the earlier tradition and whatever the tradition had become in Jerusalem around the temple and the, and the Sabbath. Uh, it, John also refers to that Sabbath as a, as a great Sabbath, a, a high Sabbath is probably the way it's translated in your, in your Bible. Um, so, so there was something about that Sabbath that was being recognized in John's, uh, narrative as well. Um, and maybe, um, that's, that's got to do with, with the Passover meal being connected to the Sabbath, uh, specifically. Um, but, but let the meanings come through. Uh, that's the other part of it that I that I that I want to emphasize. That's that's why it's it's different from you know some discrepancy on hours or something like that. This is a this is a substantive uh, understanding of who Jesus was and and of his own own teaching. But to go from there, then um, let's look at the the events around the death of Jesus specifically. And I want to go to Mark first, Mark chapter fifteen. Mark and Matthew follow along very closely with each other. In Mark chapter 15, we have the trials, uh, then Pilate. And in verse 20, they lead him out to crucify him. They press into service a passerby named Simon of Cyrene. And they bring him to a place called Golgotha, which translated is the place of a skull. I will say one of the most striking bits of visiting Jerusalem is that place that does just really suggest that, that it is the place of the skull. Um, I am always very suspicious and frankly skeptical of most of the sites that are identified um, for biblical history in, in Palestine and elsewhere. But this is one that's really quite remarkable. And the, the tomb that's nearby it, of course, fits exactly the description and and john even records that it was they they used the term nearby a tomb nearby because it was the eve of the sabbath um but whatever you make of that um it it is a remarkable site to visit it um if you can ever get anywhere near that part of the world put that one high on the list it's this place of a skull not far outside the city they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh he refuses it that seems to be some some version of a little act of kindness to try to numb the agony that he is about to experience. They crucify him. They divide up his garments, cast lots for them. And Mark tells us it was the third hour when they crucified him. This is probably counting three hours from sunrise um, because we're near the spring equinox. These hours dividing the daylight hours into 12 hours are probably going to be fairly close to 60 minute hours. Um, and, and so you're three hours past sunrise at this point. 
call it somewhere near 9 a.m., 8.30 or 9. The inscription of the charge against him reads, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on the left. There are some manuscript issues here, so there are some comments like verse 28 um, that says the scripture was fulfilled, that he was reckoned with transgressors. That may be part of the tradition that enters into the scripture. Um, it is, um, it may or may not have been in the best earliest documents, but that's, we're okay. Um, people ha- passing by are hurling insults at him, wagging their heads, saying, oh, you were going to destroy the temple, rebuild it, save yourself, come down from the cross. The chief priests and scribes are also mocking him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult. It is striking in these narratives that you have comments um, from someone like Pilate and maybe even more so the the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the council members, um, despite themselves actually speaking the truth. Um, Christ, the King of Israel, they identify him. They're mocking, but in fact, they are right. And then the verse before, he saved others he cannot save himself, is very striking. It, it is, of course, true. That is one or the other. Either he comes off the cross and saves himself, or he stays on the cross for our salvation. Then the one, the one word that's uttered in Matthew and Mark's account is that in the ninth hour, after six hours or so on the cross, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the similarity between the word for Elijah and Eloi, Eloi, they think maybe he's calling for Elijah. They try giving him the sponge again with the wine. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And then without telling us what the cry is, Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom, and the centurion bears witness, truly this man was the son of God. Part of what I do want us to just kind of see are the, are the words of Jesus from the cross. And here, as I say, we just have the one clear statement and then the crying out. But the clear statement is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting the psalmist. And we will return to that in just a minute. To turn over to Luke, go to Luke chapter 23. And we pick up in verse 26 of Luke 23. Once again, he's going away from Pilate. They lead him away. They laid hold of Simon, the Cyrenian, 
who is coming in from the country. And they have him carry the cross. Now we will see in John 19 that John comments that as they led Jesus away, he was carrying his own cross. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that they put the cross on Simon. This is the kind of so-called contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. Uh, the picture you get is that Jesus did start carrying his cross. Uh, he was so badly beaten up by this point um, that he he was not able to do it. Um, and the picture is that as they are leaving town, Simon is coming into town. It says he's coming in from the country. He wasn't there in the crowd at the praetorium or even in the city. He's coming in from outside. And as they are going out, he ends up carrying the cross the rest of the way. In uh, Luke's gospel, there's a little bit more emphasis on people who are there not to mock, but to mourn. And so you've got both sorts of people present. And Jesus turns to them and says in verse 28, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Days are coming when you will say, blessed are those who do not have children. You will say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. It is looking to what will be the destruction of Jerusalem and an awful, 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 awful time. Verse 32, again, criminals being crucified with him. Jesus saying, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. This again may or may not have been in the original account, um, but within the tradition, um, we can make of that what we choose, but um, it's certainly in keeping with Jesus. Um, and we're not sure whether, whether it is in fact something he said at the time or not. Um, but I think it is very likely that it is, even if it wasn't in some of the best manuscripts as we identify them at this point, the idea that it would be part of the tradition and make its way in is an interesting uh, possibility. Again, you have people sneering at him, mocking him. The inscription, this is the king of the Jews, verse 38. And then Luke gives us this difference, that after mocking Jesus initially, Somewhere sort of in the middle of this whole thing. Around the sixth hour, one of the, one of the criminals changes his tune, rebukes the other criminal and says, we are indeed justly receiving the penalty for what we have done. This man has done nothing wrong. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is about the sixth hour. Luke tells us that's halfway through the ordeal for Jesus. And now darkness falls over the land until the ninth hour, from noon until mid-afternoon. Darkness. And then in the ninth hour, the veil of the temple is torn. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
another quotation of the Psalms. And having said that, he breathed his last. The centurion once again gives witness. This time Luke captures the idea of Jesus as innocent or righteous. Um, Again, a picture of some women nearby and of Joseph coming to take the body. And in verse 54, that it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So in Luke, we have um, the lament and the comment about forgiving people who do not understand what they are doing. And then the comment to the criminal on the cross this day in paradise, we will be together. And then the final word into your hands, I commit my spirit. Finally, in John chapter 19, Um, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. Again, we've, we've had the portion about Pilate and now, um, verse 19 and verse 17, I'm sorry. They take him out. He goes out bearing his own cross to this place of a skull known as Golgotha. There he's crucified with the two others. And Jesus in between. John, who has said a lot more about Pilate than the other Gospels, uh, puts this inscription. We get the full thing here. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. There's a complaint by the chief priest saying, don't write the king of the Jews. But then he said, and the king of the Jews, another one of Pilate's well-known lines, what I have written, I have written. Again, that the testimony is made, no matter how made, whether in pretense or in truth, as Paul would say. The soldiers separating the garments, not tearing the one, but deciding who would get it. In verse 24, this is done, that the scripture might be fulfilled. John says, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then John brings... Some of the women in closer to the cross and, and he says that he was there too. This is the, the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 26. Certainly John. We saw John near in the place of the trial, um, back in the gospel account earlier. So while the disciples took off running, John does seem to have stayed in a little bit more both for the trial and now we have him by the cross. And so this word from the cross is Jesus now, at this point, nearing the end, certainly, um, and, and gasping for breath, barely able to get words or a phrase out. But his mother and John are there at the foot of the cross. And, and so he says to his mother, woman, verse 26, behold your son, and to the disciple, with with just this nod of the head, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all things had been accomplished, says, I thirst. John says it's in fulfillment of the scriptures. 
because it's at this point that this wine is again offered to him. Um, there, there are these two occasions. It looks like at the beginning of the ordeal, this some kind of sour wine, whether it's exactly the same thing or not, it's not clear, um, was offered to him. And now again, when he cries out in thirst on the cross, um, and they, 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 um, they come to him, they offer him this wine and reach it up to him. And then the final word, when Jesus had received this wine, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. That's an interestingly different way of putting it from the other gospels. The other gospels say he breathed his last. John says he gave up his spirit. There is this um, fascinating aspect to Jesus's death that he is both put to death. He, he dies a miserable death in which his life is drained out of him. And at the same time, as he says earlier, that he, his life is not taken. He gives it up. And, and there is some element here in John's telling of Jesus giving up his spirit and dying. And that's part of why the centurion looks on and says, this is not a usual execution. I've seen these before. I know how this works. Um, and then just to complete that account, you, you see that this is the Sabbath that is a high day in verse 31 which is the interesting comment about that Sabbath. And then you also have this bit about because it's the Sabbath, they're trying to get these guys down from the cross. And so they do what they would do sometimes to speed the death of a criminal hanging on a cross. It is actually to break their legs and make them even that much weaker to try to sustain themselves. And, and what happens in this death is that you asphyxiate. You, you are you are ultimately unable to breathe. You're unable to get any breath. They come to Jesus, and to their surprise, he's already dead. But of course, we've got to make sure. And they take a sword and they pierce his side, and blood and water come out, indicating that he is in fact dead. Now, John includes that partly because by the time John writes this gospel, one of the rumors was that he didn't actually die on the cross. Um, that he just swooned on the cross and therefore was able to, you know, quote, resurrect, unquote. It's interesting that John very specifically is is making a point here. Um, verse 34 is the piercing. Verse 35, and he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true. He knows he's telling the truth. So you may believe um, these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled as well. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And then Joseph, with Nicodemus's help, takes the body and um, buries it nearby because it was, verse 42, the Jewish day of preparation. Um, sorry, thanks. Yeah. Um, a, f a few comments on these words from the cross in John's gospel. Um, the one of, um, where am I? Sorry, uh, about thirsting. Um, I already commented on really uh, about the fulfillment of the scripture. And it's Psalm 69 that's being cited both here and then, um, in Matthew's gospel. Um, but the other two are quite striking in, in verses 26 and 27. We have this picture of Jesus giving his mother to John and John to his mother. Um, 
I, I just find this to be an extraordinary moment in the midst of this death that Jesus is able to even think about doing this, much less do it with just a few words. And, and I, and I want us to, to recognize that the full significance of it. it. It is in this moment that Jesus is creating the church. He is establishing the church through his death. And, and in the moment in which he establishes the church, he is establishing the nature or character of the church as well. And, and giving a model for what fellowship is like. And, and I love what it, what it does here. It, it is, he doesn't ask John, there are other women there. He, he doesn't ask John, these women now belong to you. It is this woman, my mother is yours and, and mom, John is yours. I give you to each other. And, and, and it's a picture of the fact that, that the church is a body and, and no one of us is asked to be responsible for every other member of the body, but each of us is linked together somehow with someone. And it is by Jesus's will and providence that we have that linkage. And, and the way to enter into it is quite simply at the foot of the cross. I mean, that, that's where you go, go to Jesus and, and ask him in your own humble stance before that cross of Jesus crucified, to whom do you give me and whom do you give to me to care for? And and he will do that. <laughs> I am convinced he will do that. And if we will listen, we will, we will find ourselves in those relationships. Uh, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't give pastors <laughs> to do all the work for all the people. It's, yes, pastors ha- will be called into relationships. Priests will be called into relationships. Leaders will be called into relationships, but we are all given these kinds of roles with each other. And, and Jesus will, will lead you in that. Um, I, I encourage you to let this be a model. Now, the other thing that's going on here, in addition to establishing the church and establishing the character of the church in the same act, is that Jesus is also not done yet fulfilling all righteousness. You know, Jesus, in accomplishing our redemption, there are two elements. One is that we need atonement for our sins, and it is in the death of Jesus and in his suffering on the cross that that atonement is accomplished. But the other thing we lack is a righteousness that we cannot manufacture on our own. This righteousness from God has been revealed, Paul says, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We need that as well as the atoning death. And and that's not an abstract concept. That is real obedience to the law. It is Jesus fulfilling the great commandments and specifically fulfilling the Ten Commandments. So even in the moments of his of the of the agony of his death, he is fulfilling the commandment to love the, your father and your mother, um, and and he does it by by caring for his mom, who is a pretty clearly a widow by now, and watching her her oldest son die, and he gives her to John, in love for his mother and in honor of his mother, and he is fulfilling all righteousness right down to the very end as well as 
receiving the penalty for sin and accomplishing our redemption in both ways. Um, I, I find this moment on the cross to be just extraordinary when you sort of stop and reflect over all that's happening in that simple um, moment and simple in one sense of just a few words where he loves John and his mother in the way that he does. And then the final one is the, is the, the one in verse 30 where Jesus says, um, it is finished. He is not simply saying, um, my suffering is over. He is not simply saying my life is over. Um, he is saying it is completed. And, and I, and I wish the English rendering were something a little bit more like that. I'm not sure what's in your different English translations. Um, but it should be something like it, it is done. It is completed. This is, this is Jesus. Remember, as Luke puts it in the transfiguration, this is Jesus completing his exodus in Jerusalem. The work that I came to do, I have done. The covenant that I came to keep, the cup that I came to drink, I have kept it. I have drunk it to the, to the bottom. The work is complete. Um, these are, these are words well worth reflecting over. I, I, I encourage you to do it. You have, you know, earlier in the agonies on the cross, the, the forgiving and, and the promise that in, in this day in paradise, we will be together somewhere later. Behold, mother, your son, behold, friend, your mother. And then the thirsting. And then these final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished into your hands. I commit my spirits. Um, and just by way of, of closing out, then I, I do want to just direct you to the, um, to the, that's numerous references to the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. Um, one that we've noted is Psalm 69, 21 about the wine and the gall being offered. Um, Psalm 34 is where there is a reference to the, the Lord's anointed having no broken bones. Zechariah 12 is where we have, they will look on him whom they have pierced. These things are coming to mind for the witnesses, uh, for the followers as they reflect back. Um, and then the two quotations out of Jesus's own mouth here, Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then most notably of all, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may know that Psalm 22, I, I, I don't know how long ago it was. I, I don't know that it was that long ago where in reading the Psalms, I stumbled into it and it just jumps off the page at you. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, actually, I remember preaching this one not long ago, I think. Um, 
so so what's happening in Jesus's death? Are, are the writers making this all up? No, no, they're not. And good scholars acknowledge there, there is something in the death where the where these Jewish followers who know their Bible well are looking on and saying, my word. This is Psalm 22. This is Psalm 69. This is Psalm 34. This is Zechariah 12. But they are most of all saying, my word, this is Psalm 22. The, the psalmist, and it's now, it's the voice of Jesus. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They, they make faces at me. They wag their heads saying, eh, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. There, there's a, there's a comment in the midst where the, where the psalmist is, but you, you brought me forth from the womb. This is that covenantal relationship of the incarnate son. And, and now he cries out, be not far from me for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. This is death by crucifixion. My strength is dried up like a dry piece of clay. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You've laid me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They look, they stare. They divide my garments and for my clothing they cast lots. And the followers look on and say, my word, that's, that's what we're seeing. And they make a note of it. And then, as if all that's not enough, the writer of Hebrews comes along, and as he writes the introduction to the book, the opening, what we know as the opening couple of chapters, and he's making the arguments about Jesus as being the Son of God, he's quoting Psalms left and right, and this is one of the Psalms he quotes. But he doesn't quote from the first 21 verses. He doesn't quote from any of the description of the death, that's pretty well established, I think, in the tradition. It's there. He quotes verse 22 of Psalm 22 as if this is still the voice of Jesus. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, join me in praise. You descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him all you descendants of Israel. So now the same figure who is in the agonies of death through the verse 19, 18 verses of the Psalm is now a speaker who is alive and well in the assembly, leading the assembly in praise, inviting all Jacob, all Israel to join him. And finally um, inviting all posterity and the nations, a people who will still be born. Uh, verse 30, posterity will serve and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness. This is with me still, the speaker of the psalm. 
They will declare his righteousness to a people still to be born that he has done it. Um, this is just a remarkable uh, understanding of this psalm by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus, the now now the risen Christ, is the lead singer in the congregation of the redeemed people. And when we sing, he is our choir director. He is our lead singer. And the one who who is pictured as dying in verses 1 to 21 is pictured as alive and well and rejoicing and inviting the congregation to join him in verses 22 and following. Um, yeah, it's, it's really quite extraordinary, um, to see these things weaving together. Um, and I, I do just commend all of this to you as you continue to reflect in these coming days. Where are we? Um, let me just ask, are there questions and thoughts you all have that you want to get at before we say goodbye again? No need. Um, as always, your comments are welcome, not just now, but anytime and notes or whatever. And glad to get together and talk sometime too. Um, but yeah, thank you as always. Um, we will have the one more, one more week. So be looking. Uh, the chapters are easy enough to identify. Um, Matthew 28, Mark 16, um, Luke 24. John 20, 21, um, and we will reflect on the resurrection appearances in those chapters when we meet a week from now. Uh-oh.